brought to you by Mariah West. I'm Amy Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm John Peters, also a graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Rick Huguenin, professor and director of the Department of Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. We'll be speaking with him about his lifelong interest in learning and memory, phosphorylation of ion channels and receptors, and his first-ever experiments, color preference of mealworms. All this and more coming up. All right, we're here today with Rick Huguenier, professor and director of the Department of Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Huguenier. Sure, it's uh, good, good to be here. So we like to start at the beginning. We know you grew up in Pennsylvania, and it sounds like you had an interest in science pretty early on. Uh, could you tell us about some of your first experiences with science and uh, maybe some influential people early on in life that helped you develop into a scientist? Uh, sure. I mean, I um, very early I was interested in, in science. Um, Actually, my first experiments were in elementary school in, in like third grade. I actually uh, tested the color preference of mealworms. Um, and um, nobody told me mealworms can't really see. <laughs> I put the mealworms in a, a color wheel and then, you know, sort of watched as they, if they preferred one direction or the other. Um, I can't remember the results of the experiment, but <laughs> but then more um, relevant is um, in high school. Um, in the high school I went to, we were allowed to have a senior uh, research project uh, as a, a senior in high school, and I had read an article um, by Bernie Agronoff in Scientific American about learning a memory, and so I, even at that age, I was interested in learning a memory. And so I tried to reproduce that experiment, and that was a, an experiment where you train goldfish in a, an escape response. Uh, so they would, you would shine a light, and, and they would have to swim away from the light, and if they didn't, you gave them a little shock. And so I actually um, trained them to do that. And then the experiment is to see if protein synthesis is involved in encoding memories. So, so uh, Bernie Agronoff's lab had injected pure mice in a, a protein synthesis inhibitor, uh, into the uh, goldfish brain, and um, and that blocked the learning. Mm -hmm. So I tried that experiment, and um, um, it didn't quite work. I killed a lot of goldfish. <laughs> it was actually very interesting because I did co control experiments using vehicle, you know. Um, so I was relatively sophisticated for a, yeah. a set. And then at the end of that set of experiments, um, I had a goldfish that really had learned really well. Uh -huh. So I, I ground up his brain and injected his brain into other goldfish. <laughs> see if I could transfer the memory, but uh, that didn't work. Didn't either. quite work. Yeah. Uh, how did you get pyramycin in high school? So that's a great uh, story. Um, so I wrote to Bernie um, Agronoff and I said, you know, I'm doing this experiment in high school. And I need to get pyramycin. You know, Scientific American, of course, didn't have a method se section, so I didn't know where to get it. <laughs> and so he wrote back and said, "You're too young to be to be doing these experiments." <laughs> and uh, so I didn't get much help from Bernie. Mm -hmm. uh, but then my uh, hi high school biology teacher, you know, found it. You know, of course, it was you could get it in Sigma, mm. and uh, so I ordered pyramycin and, and you know continued finished the experiment. Yeah, it doesn't sound to me like you were too young to be doing it. You got pretty far. As I hear you talk, it's very interesting to me. It seems that you yourself are curious about higher level questions about learning and memory and plasticity, but the way you approach that is by looking at it at the biochemical level. So can you describe how 
you came about to um, wanting to study these higher level um, uh, things in neuroscience? Sure. So, well, that goes back to my adolescence. So, I, you know, when I was in um, eighth or ninth grade, I was taking biology and really fascinated by biology and, and you know, RNA, DNA, and, and all that was just uh, just a beautiful system. I really, you know, was enthralled by it. Um, but also, at the same time, I was having, you know, sort of these emotional adolescent anxiety issues, you know, and... And it was it was sort of out of body you know experience. I, and I said, you know, this isn't me. It must be chemistry in my brain. Yeah. So, so I started. Uh, that's what you know initially got me interested. What you know, the brain is chemistry. Our behavior, our emotions, um, are based on chemistry. So I wanted to study that, and I fixated on memory because. Memory to me is who we are, and you know it. Uh, it just seemed like a really tractable uh, uh, problem. Mm-hmm. Although thirty years later, I'm still working on it. <laughs> so after that, did you decide to major in science in college? Yeah. So um, I was a biochemistry major um, in college. Actually, I went to Vassar College, which at the time was just converting from a, a women's college to a co-ed right. college. Um, so. Um, Remarkably, they had a biochemistry major, and so I um, majored in biochemistry. But I was really interested in, in neuroscience. So, but I was wanted to, you know, look at it from a molecular and biochemical point of view. And so that's why I thought training in biochemistry would be the best thing. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is 1971, so neuroscience really wasn't even a field. Molecular neuroscience was sort of a, a bridge between pharmacology, physiology, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and. And you already knew that you wanted to do science long term when you were in college, or had you thought about any other options at that point? Yeah, so my options were um, so neuroscience was number one, but I was also interested in architecture. Actually, I wanted to um, oh. be an architect. My mother was an architect, and and so I was really um, interested in that. Um, but I also had a love for horses, and um, the. Um, when I graduated from college, um, I told my parents I was going to take some time off and, and um, you know, work at a uh, raising horses and, and boarding horses. How was that conversation? Uh, that didn't go so well. <laughs> and my father, who was, you know, really pretty, uh, you know, not very authoritarian, but that was the one time he said, no, absolutely not. You have to get a job. <laughs> and so... So uh, I immediately rode away for technician jobs and was uh, lucky enough to get a job at Harvard um, in the biochemistry department there. And uh, I worked there for two years, which was a lot of fun, um, you know, learning techniques. It was not neuroscience. It was, it was um, RNA polymerase, you know, sort of biochemistry. And, and, uh, and interestingly, I worked for a postdoc uh, whose name is Carol Check. Mm-hmm. And her husband is Tom Cech, mm-hmm. who's a Nobel laureate. Um, um, at the time, I knew him. He was just a scraggly postdoc, <laughs> uh, but he ended up, uh, ended up winning the Nobel Prize. Wow. So then, for your PhD, um, continuing with the trend of the biochemistry, but interested in neuroscience, you joined Ephraim Racker's lab at Cornell. Um, so. For the listeners, Racker has discovered, among other things, mechanism behind ATP synthesis. 
And your project there was to purify and characterize the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So how did uh, this project start and how, how was experience in grad school for you? So I, I went um, to Cornell to work with Ephraim Racker because um, I was really interested in, in membrane proteins and receptors and ion channels and, and how they may be involved in, in brain function and uh, specifically learning and memory. And, and so, um, but working with membrane proteins was very difficult, mm-hmm. uh, especially back then. And he was one of the world's experts in, in uh, purifying membrane proteins and reconstituting them into vesicles and um, reconstituting ion channels. So I went to work um, with him, and most of the lab was working on oxidative phosphorylation, mitochondrial function, mm-hmm. other transports uh, mechanisms. Um, but there was a, a, a single postdoc who was working on uh, nicotinic receptor and uh, had begun studying that, and I sort of took over that project, and, and so that was perfect for me yeah. um, to try to, um, you know, to purify that, that receptor in that channel. Um, remember this again, this is 1977 or so. At that time, there were no purified channels, uh, no clone channels. Um, so we were, you know, really at the early stages of understanding how ion channels and receptors work. What was it like being in the field at that time? Was there any doubt that things, maybe your project wouldn't work, or how, how is it in that sort of time period? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough. It was right before patch clamping. Um, cloning was just uh, you know, happening barely at that time. And uh, purification of a receptor was very, very difficult because the quantity of proteins in the brain were so low, um, and the assays for those type of proteins were, were so poor. Uh, of course, we were lucky with the nicotinic receptor because we had these electric fish, um, which had highly concentrated receptors in their electric organs. And so, so that was the advantage. We could use that as a tool, um, including toxins, high-affinity toxins, to purify the receptor and then characterize it. Um, and that was actually maybe the strategy of why you guys chose that receptor to start with? Yeah. So, there, you know, uh, Jean-Pierre Changeau, there was a, a series of... Uh, people working on it, purifying it, and, and my, uh, but they were purified mostly based on ligand binding, and, and this is an ion channel. Mm-hmm. So the question was, um, was the proteins they were purifying, were they actually an ion channel? Mm-hmm. And so was the receptor, you know, was the ion channel contained within the receptor, or was it a separate protein? And so mm-hmm. that's what the thesis was, to purify the receptor to 90% purity, and then reconstitute it into vesicles and, um, and show that it contained an ion channel. All right. Well, after successfully isolating this receptor, you went on to your postdoc um, at Yale to work with Paul Greengard. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Paul Greengard uh, won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for his work on cyclic AMP signaling in neurons, along with Eric Kandel. Um, but this is long before that time. Um, and you went there to work on phosphorylation. And you ended up looking at the phosphorylation of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors that you analyzed for your PhD. So first of all, can you just maybe tell us why you were interested in this and also maybe explain for our audiences in some broad terms, for those that don't know, what phosphorylation does for proteins and why such these modifications, um, w- what they can do? Sure, sure. So, um, so phosphorylation, for those who 
are not aware of it. It's a addition of a chemical phosphate group to, to proteins. It's very it's a universal mechanism for regulating protein function. And so the addition of this negative charge to the receptor or any protein affects its structure and thereby affects its function. Um, so it's a, a, you know, there are hundreds of kinases um, that add, add phosphates to different uh, sites within um, proteins. And each uh, phosphorylation event can have a different functional effect. So you can, you know, um, so it's a very uh, ubiquitous um, um, mechanism, but also very, um, uh, you know, um, multifunctional. It can regulate many properties of receptors or channels. And, and I get the impression also it's rapid, too, in a way that, say, modulating translation or transcription of new genes uh, in a cell might not be as quick. Is that yeah. correct impression? So it can be very rapid, um, and it can be, you know, it can be stable if there if the uh, enzymes that remove the phosphate, like protein phosphatases, are not there. Um, essentially, it can last the whole lifetime of the protein. So, so it can be rapid and lo relatively long lasting. So, you know, even very early um, in college, maybe my sophomore year, I'd started reading papers from. Uh, Eric Kandel, Paul Greengard, Solomon Snyder, mm -hmm. and because um, I really wanted to understand plasticity, so how do how does the brain change in response to uh, environment experience? And it struck me that protein phosphorylation um, was an obvious way to modulate uh, you know synaptic uh, function and protein function. And so, if you phosphorylation was involved in regulating receptors and ion channels, that could be a mechanism for uh, plasticity and, and potentially learning and memory. So um, so that's why I chose to go to Paul's lab and, and, um, and again, because there were no other receptors or ion channels uh, purified, um, I decided to look at whether uh, the nicotinic receptor was phosphorylated and what phosphorylation could do to it. And, and um, you know, the concept behind this is that if the receptors are phosphorylated and their function is modified, then synaptic strength could be modified and, and that could underlie plasticity at, at synapses. Um, and in the case of these particular acetylcholine receptors that you were interested in, had anyone shown that phosphorylation could happen on these receptors at all? Um, or was there any evidence that gave you a hunch at that time? Or were you just going for it? So th there was... Um, uh, some preliminary work from, uh, again, Jean-Pierre Changeau's laboratory in Paris that they were phosphorylated, but it, it wasn't well characterized. And, and so that's what I did in Greencard's lab is really characterize the phosphorylation events, also um, identified the phosphorylation sites. Mm -hmm. And um, um, so the receptors have multiple uh, you know, sites of phosphorylation, both on serine and tyrosine residues. Mm -hmm. um, and so... And that was pretty unique back then. Uh, tyrosine phosphorylation of ion channels uh, had not been observed uh, before. So that was one of the first uh, demonstrations that receptors in ion channels could be tyrosine phosphorylated. Wow. Um, and in terms of the function, you actually um, gave a functional implication for this phosphorylation. So you showed that the phosphorylation of the acetylcholine receptor actually increased something called des desensitization kinetics. And so... Um, to define desensitization, this is basically when a receptor loses its responsiveness to its normal activating ligand or agonist. Um, 
Could you tell us about this and also like how how you think this kind of desensitization actually manifests itself as a functional uh, readout for the organism or a circuit? Or it seems a, a little counterintuitive yeah. at first, but could you explain for us you know, why it would be handy? Sure, sure. Um, so b- before I tell you that, I mean, this is a fun project. So, you know, uh, it was... Um, it was all using purified preparations. So you purify the receptor, you would phosphorylate it, then reconstitute it into vesicles to measure channel function. And, um, and you know, we were using radioactive uh, sodium ions to measure uh, ion transport and things like that. But this is right after patch clamp was, was discovered. So um, there was a young graduate student at the time, David Tank, who was um, at Cornell. And so he and I teamed up together um, and um, he patch clamped my reconstituted vesicles, and that's one way we measured the activity of the ion channel. And of course, David Tank now is well known right. to many people. Um, mm-hmm. So um, we found that the major effect of uh, phosphorylation was on desensitization, and and this is a common property of basically all receptors, where with ex- prolonged exposure to the uh, agonist they lose their responsiveness. I mean, it's most classically studied in sort of the beta-adrenergic receptor, um, um, work from Lefkowitz's lab, um, you know, shows that um, basically you down-regulate the response. And, and this is a, um, an adaptation of the cell uh, to, um, to basically lower the response and when, when it's exposed you know, to extremely long t- periods of agonist exposure. So for the nicotinic receptor, um, you know, where this would come into play is at very high frequency stimulation, where it's getting exposure to the acetylcholine, um, you would get a decreased responsiveness to the signal. So this is a sort of a short-term plasticity. It's something that can occur uh, when you're having high uh, frequency firing. Now, the reason I got out of the nicotinic receptor was you know, I was interested in plasticity, mm-hmm. and the neuromuscular junction is not very plastic. You know, it's it's uh, it's basically there, built as an all or none system to to contract muscle. Mm-hmm. And so, um, exactly what this regulation would would do at the neuromuscular junction uh, was not clear, and 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 probably is still not clear today mm-hmm. that that you have this effect on desensitization, mm-hmm. and. Um, um, where in the central nervous system, desensitization of glutamate receptors and GABA receptors play a more significant role. So at high frequency stimulation, especially at very synapses that fire very, very rapidly, desensitization is, is critical. Uh, it plays an important role that, that you do see significant desensitization of those receptors. Um, That's a nice segue for us. We, we want now to talk more about what you've done in the central nervous system. So after a few years at Rockefeller, you moved on to where you currently are at, at Johns Hopkins, and that's when uh, your work began on the central nervous system, starting with GABA, like you were discussing, and phosphorylation um, of GABA receptors. And um, you saw similarly that, like the acetylcholine receptor, phosphorylation affected its desensitization. And then you moved on to the NMDA and AMPA receptors, um, even though these hadn't been purified yet. Um, so it seems like your initial interest in these receptors was due to um, the role they play in plasticity? Yeah, so I was very, you know, um, the plasticity was most prominently uh, shown 
at that time at, at um, glutamatergic synapses. So, so I really wanted to study glutamate receptors and whether they could be modulated. Um, but neither GABA-A or glutamate receptors were, were purified or cloned at that time. Um, but just as I was moving to Hopkins, the GABA receptors were cloned. And so we began working on them because we could, you know, get the, get the cDNAs and start studying them and expressing them and, and looking at fossil relation. And, um, and that work was done uh, by Steve Moss, who was in my laboratory as a postdoc, um, who's now at Tufts as a professor. And, um, but I was, again, I was really interested in glutamate receptors. So we tried to purify glutamate receptors uh, using a variety of affinity uh, chromatography and things like that. But, um, and we were progressing. We had a band on a gel. Um, and right then we got scooped by Steve Heinemann's laboratory, who had who cloned it, uh, Michael Holman and Steve Heinemann's laboratory. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, actually, we were happy about that because that gave us incredible, you know, reagents that we could use. So we were able to, you know, get cDNAs and start making antibodies to the receptors and really to characterize uh, them in detail. Not only, you know, first of all, how they work, what, you know, structure function relationships, um, but then also start studying phosphorylation and uh, try to understand what phosphorylation does um, to the properties and whether it's, you know, involved in plasticity and, and learning and memory. Do you identify some C-terminal phosphorylation sites? So can you tell us about why this was interesting and what this revealed about the, the structure and function of this receptor? Sure. Um, you know, the, so the glutamate receptors, AMP receptors, and MDA receptors are um, functionally very similar to the nicotinic receptor and the GABA receptor. So the assumption in the field was that they would have the same structure, that um, they would have this, you know, this very characteristic structure that surrounded the ion channel and the ligand binding site was on the outside. And um, so we all assumed that was correct. And um, in the nicotinic and GABA receptors, the phosphorylation sites we characterized were on an intracellular loop the, um, between the third and fourth transmembrane domain. Um, so we started looking there, and, and um, we didn't find any phosphorylation sites. And we found that, uh, at least in vitro initially, all the phosphorylation sites were on the C-terminus. And this was uh, strange because the C-terminus, based on the model, uh, should have been on the outside. And as we all know, most phosphorylation sites occur on the inside of the cell. So for the C-terminus to be phosphorylated on the glutamate receptor, that indicated it must have a different structure than the nicotinic and the GABA-A receptor. And so we went on to characterize that and, and do mutagenesis and show that indeed in cells, these sites on the C-terminus were highly phosphorylated, uh, indicating they could not be on the outside, and that, that the glutamate receptors had to have a totally different structure than the GABA and uh, the nicotinic receptor. Was that an exciting time in your lab, having something that seems... <laughs> or confusing. Yeah, yeah, confusing or exciting. How, how was that? <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was fun. Um, and... Um, I mean, that's the great thing about science is, you know, really finding something you don't expect. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the surprises in science is what make us, uh, you know, keep going. Um, if you, everything you, you, every experiment worked and as you thought it would be, 
then it wouldn't be any fun anymore, I think. Um, so, um, so that was the first evidence, and then um, other labs picked up on this, and, and uh, Michael Holman, uh, again, uh, did a beautiful study to really map the, the topology of these receptors, and again, showed that they were quite distinct from, um, from the nic- nicotinic and the GABA receptor. Um, so basically, in the years since, you've published very prolifically, including work identifying other proteins that interact with the amper receptors um, at the postsynapse, um, and also detailing a model in which phosphorylation of specific sites in amper receptors occurs during long-term plasticity, so maybe coming back to kind of your interest in memory and mm-hmm. higher cognitive functions of the brain. Um, so something that was surprising about some of this work on long-term plasticity was that um, when you're looking at phosphorylation or dephosphorylation of these amper receptors during synaptic strengthening or weakening, we might think of something very simple where we think, okay, phosphorylation of these proteins means that we have strengthening and then the dephosphorylation is just weakening. But you actually saw something much more complex when you went to actually combine the, the, the long-term synaptic plasticity studies with your phosphorylation assays. Can you tell us kind of very briefly what you saw there? And maybe also, uh, what does this really mean? What's the biological significance of this complexity? Well, we um, the field was moving towards the direction that um, a simple explanation for LTP, long-term potentiation, which was the major model system um, for synaptic plasticity at that time, um, could be just direct phosphorylation of amper receptors and potentiating their function. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so um, we were proceeding along many others in, in trying to test that, and um, but it turns out it's always more complicated than one initially thinks, and and so it turns out there are many phosphorylation sites on these receptors, um, you know, many subunits, and they have different phosphorylation sites, and it turns out they they can be differentially regulated. Some are phosphorylated by, um, you know, protein kinase A or protein kinase C or tyrosine kinases, and and so it's the, um, in some cases, when you get plasticity, you're only regulating one of those sites. Um, um, so long-term potentiation, you can get an increase in one site, um, where in, in long-term depression, which is the opposite of an LTP, um, you can actually get dephosphorylation of a different site. Mm-hmm. And so it just illustrates the complexity of uh, uh, plasticity that many of these phosphorylation sites are are sort of a is a code um, that together the additive effects of these phosphorylation um, sites can either potentiate uh, or inhibit uh, receptor function and or membrane trafficking which is uh, of the receptors uh, which is something we study a lot these days mm-hmm. moving them in and out of the synapse to actually change the function uh, functional readouts um, yeah it's interesting because it's basically yeah, like you said a code that's an interesting uh, I guess metaphor it's, it's like the histone code yeah like the histone code there's like different patterns not only phosphorylation but uh, we also characterize uh, palmitylation mm-hmm. and uh, ubiquination sites on these receptors as well so. uh, other groups uh, being added subtracted. Something else that was really interesting about that finding is that you saw something where actually the phosphorylation, um, it, it had some kind of like memory of the history of the cell. So you could like potentiate a cell and then uh, depotentiate that cell later and it would be only one specific site that was up or down regulated based on that history. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Now, now I think 
I mean, so that was in 2000, and I think it's much more complex than that now. I think we, the model was oversimplified at the time, and so, so I think it's it's much more complex with additional phosphorylation sites. We study uh, the combination of <clears throat> how these phosphorylation sites affect the ion channel properties of the receptor, which they do, um, but also how they affect um, interaction with cytoskeletal proteins and interacting proteins to regulate trafficking of the receptors to to synapses. Um, I see. Um, since you're talking so much about all this complexity, is there any room in this field, do you think, for some kind of very high throughput, I can't even imagine for phosphorylation, high throughput assays to kind of really get a, a, a kind of bird's eye view on this kind of code? Um, I mean, we're developing high throughput assays for other things, but mm-hmm. um, for the code, we, have, we haven't we have really um, found a way to, to rapidly screen them. So, um, you know, we, we generate a series of knock-in mice that have mutations in each of these uh, these post-translational modification sites. Um, and we're doing that in, in single mutations as well as in combinations. Uh, that's not quite high throughput, mm-hmm. but um, it's one way to look at how they these different sites uh, have functional effects on their own, but also in combination with other sites as well. Mm-hmm. And a systematic way. So I think this is a theme of science that exemplifies very well of having a simple understanding of something, but then it turns out to be much more complex than we could have imagined. (laughs) So in a moment, we're going to ask you to give us a preview of your upcoming talk at Stanford. But before we do that, we're going to go back and ask you a question of what you think the next most important question for the AMPA receptor, receptor field and plasticity is in order to make sense of some of this complexity. So, as you said, my uh, original interest was really in behavior and, and uh, learning and memory and how molecules could could affect that or underlie cognitive processes. I mean, that's been my goal my whole career, and so, but that's a very ambitious goal to try to link changes in individual molecules to behavior. And so we haven't done that quite yet um, to the level of detail I'm interested in. So I think that's a big challenge is, is to, you know, how do you show that phosphorylation or modification of amperoceptor function really underlies some form of learning and uh, some cognitive behavior? And, uh, and the way we've approached it is to, you know, try to use genetic methods to uh, rapidly and reversibly modify these forms of regulation in, in a mouse and then see how that affects both the physiology and plasticity in the mouse, but also the behavior of the mouse. So we we study learning and behavior, fear conditioning, um, you know, uh, motor uh, learning, many forms of learning uh, to see how they're impacted by these um, regulatory mechanisms. Um, another thing that I'm really interested in is once you learn something, you know, memories can last for decades in humans. You know, we can remember what happened to us in, in grade school. I remember those mealworms, you know. <laughs> So how do you maintain that memory? You know, it's not a silicon circuit. It's a, you know, it's a squishy brain um, where proteins are turning over every, you know, week or so. So uh, what are the mechanisms that maintain those circuits, presumably the same circuits uh, that were formed when I did those first mealworm experiments? So 
Um, so that's something we're really interested in studying as well. And both those are very fundamental questions of neuroscience. I think it'd be very exciting to get at some of those answers. <laughs> yeah. Um, the more immediate concern is, is really at a s sort of cellular level, in spite of studying these forms of plasticity, LTP and LTD, for 20, 30 years, at the molecular level, um, you know, we, we still don't know how it works. We know exactly what's happening, how receptor function is modulated, and specifically how the trafficking of receptors to the synapses and, and away from synapses are changed. Um, so, you know, the prevailing theory right now is that during uh, long-term potentiation, you add receptors to the synapse, you thereby strengthen the synapse, and during LTD, you remove receptors from the synapse and you decrease the synaptic strength. Uh, how that occurs at a molecular and detailed level is still um, controversial and um, unknown. So, so in the next you know four or five years, uh, I think that's a big question for the field. What what are the molecular details involved in that process? I mean, you've identified several interacting proteins, even shown that phosphorylation can um, regulate some of these proteins binding to AMP receptors and potentially shuttle them, but what do you think would be the linchpin kind of, or nail in the coffin kind of evidence? Like, would we be seeing this and, and visualizing this in vivo, or? Yeah, so we've done a lot of these experiments in, in vitro, so so we've, we've studied, you know, the biochemistry of these receptors. Um, we do a lot of cell biology where we study receptor trafficking in, in tissue culture and, you know, we can watch them and uh, receptors move around in, in neurons and in, in the culture dish. Um, but um, one thing about five years ago we decided to do was to try to actually use the same approach but actually study that in vivo. So, so we actually express these fluorescently tagged receptors in mice, um, in uh, alive, awake uh, mice. And then we use the revolution of two-photon imaging to, to actually image uh, in the intact animal receptors, uh, you know, actually during a learning process. So we're actually trying to watch the receptors in the live, awake, behaving animal as it's learning something. And our prediction, of course, would be that when the animal is learning something, you're going to have dynamic changes in receptor contact at synapses, and that could mediate plasticity. Um, so that, that's a fun new technique, a new, new approach we're using to address this in, in vivo. Sounds exciting. Yeah, that does sound very exciting. So you've talked about, about what you've done in the past and some of what you're working on now, but uh, could you give us a brief preview of your upcoming talk at Stanford and what you're going to, to talk to us about when you come visit? A bit of a teaser. <laughs> sure, sure. So I'm going to tell basically two stories. One is about a, a protein we isolated in the 1990s called SYNGAP. This is a RAS gap that's involved in RAS signaling at the, at the synapse, excitatory synapses. It's a pretty remarkable molecule. It, it's uh, found only at uh, excitatory synapses. It's, it's very uh, you know, specialized. And it regulates RAS signaling. It negatively regulates RAS signaling. And we've shown uh, over the last 10 or 15 years that it regulates receptor trafficking by regulating RAS uh, and the ERK kinase pathway. So we've been studying how does LTP and NMDA receptors regulate RAS function. And so I'll talk about our recent studies on, on that. How is uh, SYNGAP activity or 
uh, localization regulated during plasticity. Um, but an interesting thing about SYNGAP is that in the last maybe six or seven years, it's found to be one of the major genes that is mutated in uh, non-syndromic intellectual disability, um, but also has been one of the top uh, hits in uh, GWAS studies of both autism and schizophrenia. So mutations in this gene um, really have a profound effect uh, in humans um, in intellectual disability, autism, and schizophrenia. And so we're really interested in this, what is happening with these mutations, what's the difference, say, a mutation that may occur in autism versus intellectual disability, and why that would give you different, you know, apparent phenotypes. Um, so that's, that'll be the first story. And, and then the second story is basically describing this new technique, um, the in vivo imaging and uh, initial development of the technique and being able to, to actually see dynamic uh, receptor movement in the intact animal. And our most recent studies where we, we actually are training mice to do a learning task, and we were, we're trying several different learning tasks. One we're uh, looking at is a, a motor learning task. So we're, we're actually doing this training while the mouse is in the scope, so the mouse is somewhat immobilized, um, but we're training it how to reach out and grab a food pellet, and it takes about a day or two for this mouse to learn that. Um, but we're imaging it while it's being trained, so we can, uh, we can give it training trials, and then in between each training trial, we can image the motor cortex where this plasticity is thought to occur, and um, you know, watch the dynamics of the receptors, and, and uh, you know, during uh, the actual training process in the live intact animal. So th this sort of blows my mind that if you know if you told me ten years ago we'd be able to do this, I would say you were crazy. But um, but it's um, it's working and it's uh, it's giving us some really interesting. So all the way as from well. learning goldfish to learning mice, um, <laughs> and and all the way from protein synthesis to now visualizing amphoreceptor dynamics. So this should be very exciting. We look forward to that. Um, so usually we like to end with something fun. We call this our rapid fire question section. So we're just um, going to ask you a few quick questions, and you can answer with whatever comes to the top of your mind. Um, all right, so the first question, John. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a student, what advice would you give yourself in the past? Um, well, I tell this to all, all my students and students when I visit. Um, you know, you, you really have to study what your passion is. You know, this is a cliche, but it's really true that... You really have to love uh, and be incredibly curious about whatever research you're doing. And that's what's going to drive you and that's what's going to make you successful. Um, if you really have that passion for understanding that question, uh, you're going you're to be successful. And I think, um, you know, I think too many students these days try to go for something that's trendy or something they think they're going to get funding for. And I think that's, that's a mistake. You really need to love what you do. and, and Really, um, obviously, I've been obsessed with learning memory for thirty year, oh, year or so. So uh, that's what's that's what's way. driven yeah. me. <laughs> it's worked. Um, all right. Second question: If you could meet any scientists from any other time in history, who would you meet? Um, I know you've met many important scientists already <laughs> in real life. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> tough one. I'd have to go way back because I've met, you know, I've been lucky enough to meet many of yeah, the great mm -hmm. scientists. 
been alive during the last 30 years. Um, that's tough. I mean, I would say, you know, obviously the ones to think about are Darwin, Mendel. Um, so last question. If you could do anything else, study anything else, science, non-science, what would you do? Um, I wouldn't do <laughs> horses. I would, I would do architecture. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And I want to design, I, I have not designed my own house yet. Maybe I, one day. Still, still want to do that. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. No, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Sure. It's been fun. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Bernardo Sabatini, professor of neurobiology at Harvard. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Catalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Louis Giam, Eddie Alberin, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, Sharon Liu, John Peters, and myself, Aiden Yee. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all the past episodes of Neurotalk in our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle, at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm John Peters. And I'm Aiden Yee.